0: This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we talk first with the new executive director of the Seattle City Club, Teresa Moore, who outlines what the organization is all about, from its community learning programs to its core mission of fostering civic dialogue about the issues that affect us most here in Washington. In her words...
1: What we have now is an opportunity to bring people together to understand that when we can ask questions with the idea of building our understanding and finding common ground, we can build a much more civil and honorable society.
0: Also, with this year's legislative session in Olympia now complete, we take stock of what the Democrats were able to get accomplished. 45th LD Senator Monka Dingra joins us to offer her perspective on some of the bigger achievements. Not least was the passage of the budget, a thing she says in and of itself speaks volumes.
2: A budget is a value statement. And we saw that in education with our children, mental health services, substance use disorder, trying to address our education system, uh, the environment, and you know the list goes on and on.
0: We also have our weekly calls to action with research team leader Stephen Wilhelm. And before we jump in, I would like to say hello and welcome to our new listeners in Bellingham at station KMRE. There's lots to cover this week and it's all ahead, so stay with us. Since 1980, the Seattle City Club has been working to foster civic discourse through programs like Civic Cocktail, their boot camp, and they've also hosted numerous political debates. All of this aimed at giving members of the community the chance to engage with their leaders and to help people hear and learn more about our state's most pressing issues. And earlier this year, the club appointed a new executive director, Teresa Moore, and she joins us now. Hi, Teresa.
1: Hello, Stefan. Thanks for having me.
0: It's really great to talk with you. Um, and you know and just for people who may not be familiar, let's just start by talking about what the Seattle City Club is and what its mission is. So the tagline for the club is Democracy starts with you. So talk about what that means.
1: It means that without civil civic discourse and the engagement of every member in our community, that our democracy will not thrive. So Seattle City Club was founded with the idea that we should inform and inspire civic engagement so that people can confront their leaders, uh, engage in respectful discourse with their leaders, hold them accountable, learn about important issues, and then be empowered to take action. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, and that's very, very important to us that we present all sides of issues. Uh, We do not favor one side of the aisle or the other. Uh, We are a nonprofit organization. And uh, frankly, we are not really even a club. We are a welcoming, mission-driven nonprofit organization open to all. I often will get a comment from someone, oh, your programs sound amazing, Mm. but I'm not a member. You don't have to be a member. Uh, you all you have to do is sign up, take part, and we'll welcome everyone.
0: You know, you mentioned that uh, part of the stated mission is discourse that is civil, uh, respectful, takes place in a safe space where people can express every viewpoint. Uh, I think anybody who spent any time on social media these days knows that we're in a political era where that's kind of a tall order. Um, do you feel like this is a particularly challenging time to do what the City Club does?
1: I would say it's a time of great opportunity because with the with the rise of social media, it is much easier to be disrespectful and critical and um, and 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 even, um, I guess, disagreeable when you can't be face to face with people. I think that what we have now is an opportunity to bring people together, both in person, online, However, that might be to understand that when we can ask questions with the idea of building our understanding and finding common ground, we can build a much more civil and honorable society. So we have an enormous opportunity right now to help people understand that when they engage, when they come from a position of information and inspiration, that they can foster that kind of democracy that I think we all want.
0: Well, you know, one of the key venues for this kind of discourse that we're talking about here is called civic cocktail. So just tell us a little bit about that.
1: Civic Cocktail is one of our signature programs, and it take pl- takes place eight times a year and eight months out of the year. We hold it in downtown Seattle at the Palace Ballroom, draws about 250 people, and we usually have two segments. So we bring civic leaders, uh, leaders in business, government, nonprofits, um, media, media. Uh, sports, all kinds of folks together. It's an interview format with a moderator in partnership with Seattle Channel. And it's an informal dialogue with these leaders. Uh, We have that live audience where people from the audience can ask questions, We have guest journalists who also ask questions, and we, again, typically have two segments. So, for example, in our most recent Civic Cocktail, we responded to the issue in Seattle around the Como TV documentary called Seattle is Dying.
0: And I will just mention that that is a tremendous interview that you did, uh, and you really did cover all sides. And I will just tell listeners, I will have a link for people to check out the video at IndivisiblePodcast.org. yeah, it was a tremendous program,
1: and and that's what we try to do with Civic Cocktail. It's very very timely, it's responsive to emerging issues and issues that are on everybody's lips at the time, and so it does be uh, bring people together to have that kind of again civil dialogue holding leaders accountable and being able to talk about these issues with the idea that the conversation then continues with everyone who participates who watches the program on Seattle channel to then go on and have their own dialogues and to begin to affect change in those issues
0: well you know i will just ask you you say that you're choosing subject matter that is on everyone's lips that's sort of a difficult thing to determine sort of the zeitgeist of the moment are there particular criteria that you use to determine the programming that you put on at civic cocktail
1: well i think first and foremost it needs to be something compelling about an issue that people care about it needs to be timely. So in at our next Civic Cocktail on June 5th, we will have Commissioner of Public Lands, Hilary Franz, who will be talking about the wildfire season. So right now we're going into summer. It's looking like the wildfires are starting actually very early already. Yeah. What it is what's ahead in, in that topic? For the future. So being able to have those timely, critical issue discussions is really a hallmark of civic cocktail.
0: And, you know, you touched on this earlier, the, uh, the aspect of accountability for our elected officials. Um, as you mentioned, we you know, you've done programs with members of Congress, uh, our senators, the governor, the lieutenant governor, the AG, uh, Seattle mayors. Just give us an idea of how attendees to these uh, events get to engage with leaders and hold them accountable.
1: Well, certainly through the questions that are asked. They can do that. The follow up uh, discussions among themselves. Uh, frankly, we're looking at at finding ways that we can make not just the cocktail, but all our programs more engaging so that there can be that more face to face interaction with elected officials. Certainly uh, our debates is another area right. that. Uh, Brings people into direct contact with the people who are seeking their vote for public office. This fall, we will be hosting debates for all seven Seattle City Council races.
0: You know, but I was going like- to ask you about that. There are a lot of candidates running. I think right now they're over 50. Um, have you determined the criteria for inclusion in these uh, debates?
1: Well, Stefan, we will definitely not be doing primary debates because that would be an overwhelming <laughs> task. <laughs> As you say, there are more than 50. I think now it's a, a, even perhaps top 60 candidates. Wow. So what we will do is immediately after the primary, we will be in contact with the campaigns of the two candidates for each office and in the fall in September and early October, we will host those seven general election debates.
0: You know, you you also touched on something that I I wanted to ask you about, which is the nonpartisan uh, nature of the city club. Your website actually says you are passionately nonpartisan. So as we know, Seattle's political makeup is predominantly left leaning. Um, Has it been challenging incorporating voices and or issues from the right?
1: It is challenging. You're right. Seattle is a progressive, left-leaning city. Uh, what we always try to do in both our in our board makeup, in the composition of our programs, is to look for those voices that can provide that balanced perspective. And I think that there are, are other organizations in our community, in our state, that host similar sort of civic engagement missions, but they have a point of view. They are advocating for their position on the issues that they're passionate about. And the unique space that Seattle City Club occupies is that we want to foster civil, respectful, Debate and dialogue on issues for everybody, because again, if we cannot bring people to the table to talk and to seek out their common ground and to ask questions of each other, our polarized society will get ever increasingly polarized, and that's not what our mission is all about.
0: One of your uh, more immersive programs is called Civic Boot Camp. Um, Tell us about that and what that's designed to do.
1: Civic Boot Camp is a deep dive into a single issue. So people come together for a full day. They take so, for example, we have one coming up on May 24th on the topic of civil rights. So we will have about 30 people who have signed up for Civic Boot Camp who will come in in the morning and they will hear from prominent speakers in this area on civil rights, people who have lived experiences uh, in, in racial injustice and advances in civil rights. They will take field trips to service providers and other organizations that have uh, made advances uh, in civil rights so that they will get to talk with people face-to-face and ask questions and then by the afternoon feel so well-informed that they'll be able to come together and say, okay, now what? We have made progress, but what else can we do to be able to make sure that We protect and defend the civil rights of every person in our community. We've done similar civic boot camps on topics like homelessness and bringing people together to understand these are the issues, this is what underlies them, and now what can I do to make a difference?
0: You know, it's designed to develop civic leadership. Um, So is this something that is meant for people of all ages or is it generally uh, geared toward younger people?
1: I think it's for people of all ages it is also something that we're finding increasingly that companies that want to make sure that their employees are engaged and committed to this community are sending their employees to in groups so if, if i'm a, a the human resources director of a company that has spent good money to recruit and train and nurture employees. I wanna be sure that those employees are connected to their communities and understand the issues so that those employees stick around and feel an allegiance to their community and their company. And so we have organizations that will send groups of their employees to work together and be able to be well connected to the issues that are shaping their communities.
0: Well, it's a great civic service that the City Club provides. I will mention that the boot camp is $250, but I understand there are scholarships available. Yeah.
1: It is $250 because it is such an intensive program that requires so much staff time and um, coordination. And we have speakers and lunch and transportation to and from. So it is it can be a hefty price tag for a lot of people. We do have scholarships. We have sliding scales. So we do want to make this available to as many people as possible. We will also in the future be looking to Uh, companies and foundations in our community to provide direct support for, for programs like Civic Boot Camp, so that if we were to get enough funding, we could offer this program at a very low cost or free, especially for People who come from lower income backgrounds or who are younger and newer in their careers and might not be able to afford to attend because those are the people that we really especially want to become engaged in these issues.
0: Well, that sounds like part of the new strategic plan for the club and its programming that I know that you've been considering. Um, And as I say, you you've just come on as executive director. So tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you came to work with Seattle City Club.
1: This role in City Club is the perfect marriage of my passions, my interests, and my experience. I started my career as a political reporter for United Press International after earning a degree in political science. I worked in state government in my home state of Texas for the State Department of Education there. I came to Washington to work with the Washington Education Association, which is a influential player in state politics here. And for the past 20 years, I had owned my own f- consulting firm that worked with more than 200 nonprofit organizations to help them tell their story and raise more money. And so again, it's the perfect marriage. When I learned about this opportunity, it took um, it had had everything. It had my passion for nonprofit service my skills and abilities in nonprofit leadership and communications and fundraising and programs, and then my long-held passion for political affairs.
0: Well, it's really nice when you find something that uh, is is such a perfect fit that way. Um, As I mentioned, you are developing uh, a new strategic plan for the club. Um, What sorts of changes are you envisioning?
1: Well, we have a very, very busy year and a half ahead of us, so we're not going to take on many new programs just because we're doing seven city council debates in the fall. Next year is a Washington State Debate Coalition year where we will be doing statewide debates all over the state for definitely for governor and for one other statewide race that we've not yet selected Uh, we have our existing programs i'm brand new we have other brand new staff. so what we're looking at doing over the next year and a half is making sure that all of our existing programming is more accessible to people in our community all kinds of people we want to be sure that we are offering opportunities for everyone to have a voice we'll be taking a, a hard look at Uh, where we want to go in terms of our fundraising infrastructure. Uh, We'll be bringing on a new program director very soon, and we want that person's insights to be reflected in how we shift our programs to make them even more powerful. Uh, If we take on anything new, we will be looking to uh, perhaps be a, a, a service convener of other civic engagement organizations in this space so we can be sure that we're all serving the needs of the community without duplication and with real intention. And of course, one of our primary goals always is to increase participation from low income communities, communities of color, underrepresented communities so that everyone has a voice.
0: You said in a recent newsletter that you are currently seeking input from people on how the City Club can best serve the community. So what sorts of things are you hearing from people so far?
1: Well, what, what I'm, I'm hearing is that people love the fact that, as we've already talked about, we are passionately nonpartisan. They appreciate what we are doing already in the community. I've had uh, one or two comments uh, that you mentioned about trying to make sure that we have both conservative and progressive voices on our programming. So we're hearing from people that they like what we're doing, they want us to do more of it, and they want us to be ever conscious conscious of that nonpartisan mission.
0: And if people have some input that they would like to share with you, uh, where can they go to, uh, to share that?
1: They should send their comments to cityclub at seattlecityclub.org. So send us an email.
0: All right, great. Well, I will have that information again for people at IndivisiblePodcast.org. Teresa Moore is the new executive director of the Seattle City Club. It has been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, Teresa.
1: Thank you, Stefan. It's been my pleasure.
0: So this year's legislative session in Olympia drew to a close on April 28th, and it was, by most measures, a very good one for Democrats. As we have discussed on the show, Democrats amassed solid majorities in both the House and Senate in the midterm election, and, of course, Washington has a Democratic governor in Jay Inslee, so expectations were high that a lot would get done. So now that the dust is settled, I thought that it would be a good time to take stock of this session. We have invited on our friend, 45th LD Senator Manka Dingra, to help us Review. Senator Dingra, welcome. Thank you so much
2: for having me on the show.
0: So, you know, um, let's just jump in and talk about some of what passed and what didn't. Uh, And first, let's start with the big thing that passed, uh, and that is the annual budget. Um, It passed on time for the first time in over a decade. And uh, this happened just under the wire, didn't it?
2: Yes, uh, it did. And this is the first time in a regular session uh, in 10 years that we ended on time with a balanced budget. So this really is something that I am actually very proud of. Uh, I was fortunate this session that I was elected by my peers to be a deputy majority leader, so I was part of leadership, and I can tell you that for me and many of us in our caucus, it was really important that we end on time with a balanced budget that we could all be proud of, and we did exactly that.
0: Can you give us a sense of what that scene was like? It it was a late night session when the budget passed. Obviously, there were there were issues of contention.
2: You know, uh, there were things that were going on. Uh, The one thing I will say is that the Democratic Party is a big tent. And with a big tent, it means you have a lot of people under that tent. And so there's a wide variety of perspectives. And so You know, just saying um, that, oh, the Democrats are in the majority, that doesn't really mean that everyone is going to vote in a particular way. Uh, Being a Democrat means that you hear a lot of different points of views and you have really good discussion and discourse about it. And that is what we saw in Olympia this session.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, case in point, I understand there was a lot of discussion like that uh, over the push for a capital gains tax. Uh, a lot of people, you included, had hoped that we would see a capital gains tax as a way to fund education in the state. It, it was expected to have the votes in the House, but it failed in the Senate. Can you give us any insight as to why?
2: You know, um, I have run both of my elections talking about capital gains. Uh, we do have the most regressive tax structure in the country, and this is something we really have to make sure we're changing. We made good strides in that this year, but we were not able to uh, get the capital gains to the finish line. It is something I'm always going to continue to advocate for because it is more fair than us relying on sales tax, b tax, and property tax. And even though we have a majority in the Senate, like I said, you know, the Democrats are a big tent. We simply did not have the votes uh, for it. I'm really hoping that um, next session or the year after that, that we are able to get there. A lot of it is about educating people, and I tried to do a lot of that this session. The proposal that we had in the Senate was for those individuals who actually make, that means profit, have a profit of over a quarter million dollars. And after the, so the one dollar that you make after your quarter million dollars, you pay um, 8% on. So that excludes retirement accounts. It excludes um, if you are selling your residence or a small business. And so it really would impact a very small uh, percentage of people. And so really making sure we're doing a good job educating individuals about that. And we tried to do a lot of it this session. But unfortunately, we simply did not have the votes for capital gains uh, this session. But I really do think this is something we have to change And we really do have to make sure our tax structure is not as upside down as it currently is.
0: Well, capital gains is set to be fast-tracked in next year's session, so we'll see uh, if we can get it done then. Let's shift over and talk about some of the bills that did get passed. Uh, So first, let's talk about health care. So the governor's signature plan, Cascade Care, passed. This will allow the state to contract with private insurers to create a so-called public option. Uh, Give us your thoughts generally on Cascade Care. You know,
2: um, I think the bottom line is that people cannot go into bankruptcy or go into debt because of health care. Health care has to be a basic right. And so as a state, we really have to think about what are we doing at a state level to protect individuals' health care rights. And um, that's what you saw this session was us actually trying to make sure we have policies in place that protect individuals in the state of Washington, regardless of what happens at the federal government. And uh, Cascade Care is a step in trying to see how we can do a public option for those individuals who are living in the state of Washington. And, uh, you know, there's a group that's going to be studying how to expand it, how to take a look at it, figure out what the barriers are. Uh, we did uh, some work around drug pricing transparency so there's a lot of work we did around healthcare in really making sure we have clear understanding of what the costs are what the barriers to care are and how we as a state can step up to make sure that we are protecting the healthcare of all individuals.
0: Well, you know, many health care advocates felt that Democrats had a unique opportunity to make Washington the first state in the nation to have universal health care in some form or other. Uh, Senator Emily Randall had pushed SB 5822, which was intended to set up an exploratory panel to talk about ways to get there. We talked with her uh, about that on this show. Um, it came very close, but it got stuck in committee. Um, any insight as to why?
2: You know, um. As I mentioned, healthcare is extremely complicated, and I think we have to be smart in negotiating that. Uh, this is something we're going to continue to work on. I think cascade care is a good first step in helping us get to an understanding of how we can get there as a state. So it is it is something that is tricky to navigate, and I would love to say, oh, yes, let's just get it done. Right. But I think we do have to be thoughtful and deliberate about it. And uh, I will say that we're moving in the right direction. We are trying to make sure that we are thoughtful. We don't want to take wrong steps that are going to basically implode the whole system.
0: But you're saying that you think Cascade Care is something that we can build on.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think Cascade Care is definitely uh, something we can build on. Uh, And the plan is that we will be looking at it and uh, taking a look at how Uh, what next steps we can take from there.
0: Okay. So let's shift over and talk about gun safety. Um, I-1639 passed in November, and that instituted a lot of common sense gun safety measures in and of itself. But the legislature was also able to pass a number of additional measures this year. Can you talk about some of those?
2: Absolutely. I had a few of those. Um, I had um, a bill that said that if you've been charged with a crime— and uh, competency has been raised, and you've been found not competent to stand trial, uh, which means that you don't understand the nature of the offense, or um, can insist in your own defense and that your case is going to be dismissed, that at that point in time, the judge can take a look and see if you have a history of violence. And if you have a history of violence, you lose your right to possess a firearm.
0: Very common sense. Very
2: common sense. And so that bill passed with bipartisan support. We had a big domestic violence bill that dealt with um, weapons, saying that when law enforcement responds to domestic violence, Seen uh, if there are guns that are in plain sight that they can see that they shall seize them. They can also uh, get consent from uh, the victim or family member that's there and do a search of the house and remove those guns. And these guns are going to be removed only for five days. And this is very consistent with the data that we see that says that when a gun is involved in a domestic violence situation or is just present in a domestic violence situation, the lethality rate for women goes up by uh, five times. Hmm. And so the five-day removal of guns is basically the cooling-off period. It gives the judges to enter orders uh, to remove the guns. It can also help um, women or the spouses, or because they're not always women, right. Um have time to get an ERPO, an extreme risk protection order, for themselves. So uh, that was the bill that passed. I was very happy that uh, the companion to my bill um, is now law. Uh, Senator Fract had an ERPO bill, the extreme risk protection order, that was passed by the voters a few years ago. This built on some of the recommendations that, uh, that were made by the people who do this work to close loopholes. That passed. Uh, We also made sure that our state patrol had the resources it needs to do the background checks. That's now required uh, under state law. So there's a lot of good common sense things that happened. And, um, you know, that's the bottom line is you have to make sure that individuals who have a history of violence don't have access to firearms. We had Senator Cooter's bill, which said that if you have been referred for civil commi- commitment because you are a danger to yourself or others, that you lose your right to possess a firearm for six months. And again, that's really common sense because the other thing that we know is that um seventy percent of suicides are committed with a gun. so if we if someone uh, has a petition, that they are a danger to themselves or others, it's, again, common sense to make sure that their uh, right to possess a firearm is taken away for six months so that we are addressing both issues, uh, one, that they're not a danger to themselves, and second, that they're not a danger to others. So I think there was some really uh, good stuff that happened in terms of... Um, gun legislation.
0: Absolutely agreed. Additionally, I should mention, uh, the legislature passed a measure banning 3D guns. So yeah, a lot of great stuff got done. Um, Let's shift over and talk about the environment. Uh, A lot of people were disappointed that I-1631 didn't pass. This would have imposed uh, a fee on carbon emissions. But the Democrats and the legislature managed to get quite a bit done. First, there was SB 5116, which mandates that utilities phase out coal by 2025 and phase out natural gas by 2045. This is great. Give us your thoughts on that.
2: Yes. You know, we only have one planet. This is it. And we have to make sure we can care of it. We are a state that believes in science and data. And even for those who don't, you just have to take a look at the last two summers One summer, we had ash falling for a week and we couldn't go out. The second summer, we had so much smoke that we couldn't go out for um, a week. You know, we cannot have this continue to be a reality. I was so proud uh, to be able to vote for all these great bills where we're really looking at uh, production. We want to be 100% clean, making sure we're investing in clean energy, uh, making sure that we are working um, to clean up Puget Sound to help with the orca population. You know, all of us saw that mother um, orca carrying around her dead baby. I mean, it
0: was just it was heartbreaking. Yeah. It was just heartbreaking.
2: Um, you know, we have uh, orcas dying because they don't get enough salmon. It's, this is really the time for us to step up and take climate change as seriously as we can.
0: There were a number of other bills that passed. You mentioned some of those. Um, There was one that phases out uh, hydrofluorocarbons. Um, One of the bills that's gotten national attention is uh, the passage of the so-called human composting bill. Um, Can you give us your thoughts on that?
2: Yes, that was actually a really interesting bill that Senator Peterson had. Um, And fascinating is, you know, we haven't really, as a society, talked about what happens to our bodies when we die in, in, in decades. And so I think this was a very intriguing bill. Um, it does deal with creative ways on where we can do, um, you know, human composting. And so I'll be interested in knowing, um, how it gets implemented and how many people take advantage of this option that will now exist in the state of Washington. But, um, I think it's fabulous that we're looking at all aspects of how we can be more environmentally friendly.
0: Yeah, well, we're definitely leading the way in the state in very uh, innovative ways. Now, as you mentioned another bill that got national attention was uh, Senator Kuderer's bill that would require presidential candidates to have to disclose their tax returns in order to be on the ballot in the state. It seemed like it had enough support. So any thoughts on why this failed to make it out of committee?
2: You know, I am sometimes it's, I'm always surprised by what bills make it out of committees and uh, what bills don't. Uh, obviously, you have to have the right votes to get it out of committee. Um, you know, we tried doing a lot of stuff this session again on having our elections be more transparent, doing more in terms of PACs and having them disclose um, who their donors are. And this was, you know, part and parcel of really making sure our elections are more transparent. And it's right. unfortunate that it didn't get signed into law. But, um, you know, hopefully we'll still be able to see the tax returns at some
0: point in time. You know, uh, another issue that made national news this year uh, is the actions of Republican Representative Matt Shea of Spokane Valley. Um, He distributed a manifesto called A Biblical Basis for War. He has publicly aligned himself with right wing militia figures. Um, He's leading the charge to split the state in two. Um, A Guardian piece recently reported that he supports surveillance of protesters. Um, and I know that this is all happening on the House side, but there's been pressure on Republican leadership to oust him. What's been your sense of the situation around the Capitol?
2: You know, I think this is where each party, Republicans or Democrats, have to take stock and stand up for the values that they think represent their party. And um, I think it is important to Republican leadership to really be very clear as to what does and does not um, align with their values. And so I think they do need to make sure that they are stripping him of his committee assignments and that they are ensuring that, um, you know, he doesn't have staff that can, that are uncomfortable um, or don't want to work with him. But I think there need to be consequences I also think that a lot more work needs to be done with his district to make sure they understand that um, he's not going to be very effective as legislature with um, the manner in which he's behaving because it's downright offensive. So um, I think this is where party leadership has to step up. And while the House is dealing with those issues, um, I will say that this last year I was uh, working on the Code of Conduct For the legislators, given all the harassment and sexual harassment allegations that we have had, and even in those work groups, you know, I used to be very clear that we have to hold people accountable for their behavior. It is not our job to make excuses for people or to protect people. And so whether it is racist uh, information or whether it's sexual uh, harassment or harassment in general— I think this is where we all have to, you know, stand up for our values and say this is unacceptable behavior and there will be consequences.
0: And, you know, you say it's it's offensive. It's also dangerous. Far right activists are on the rise uh, in this state and in, in the northwest in particular. There was a hate crimes bill that passed this year. Can you give us any insight on any other legislation that might be on the horizon that can further address this situation?
2: So you know, um Lou, I'm glad that we got the hate um, crimes bill. Um, I've been working on hate crimes since after 9-11 as a prosecutor with King County. And so it's something that I've actually trained people on, uh, have gone to trainings for, have prosecuted these cases, and they are on the rise. But I will tell you that I think our law enforcement in the state of Washington, especially King County, has been responsive and has built a lot of relationships with communities to make sure that they feel that they're safe, that they have the ability to to, uh, refer a lot of these cases, to kind of uh, call and report a lot of these cases. So I think there's a lot of trust that's been built around communities of color um, and law enforcement, especially in King County. I think what's also going to be very helpful is all the training that's going to go in through the Criminal Justice Training Academy. Uh, We've funded more classes, and also with the de-escalate um, initiative that we had. That was
0: I nine forty that passed, yeah.
2: I nine forty that passed. There'll be more training there as well on de-escalation um, scenarios. So I think there's a lot that the state of Washington is doing that really, again, we're leading the country when it comes to law enforcement and community relationships and the training. That everyone is getting across
0: the board well yeah I think as we've uh, discussed so far I think Washington is leading the way on a number of levels and you know I would just love to get your closing thoughts on this year's session Uh, I think a lot of people were hopeful that Washington could really lead the way as a blue state and as an example for the rest of the nation and uh, and also work to quote-unquote Trump proof Washington so how do we do in your assessment
2: you know, I think we did all of that and, and more. It, this really is a session we can all be proud of. I was also very excited that we in the Senate had a behavior health subcommittee, and I was honored to chair that subcommittee. So we saw incredible legislation dealing with mental health issues, the opioid crisis, um, substance use disorder in general. We also had a special committee on housing and affordability. And again, we saw a lot of policies in that regard as well this session. You know, and at the end of the day, a budget is a value statement. And the budget that was passed this session speaks volumes to what we as uh, Washingtonians value. And that is really ensuring we're putting people first and doing what we can to help people Flourish, And we saw that in education with our children, mental health services, substance use disorder, trying to address our um, education system, especially uh, higher ed, uh, the environment, and, you know, the list goes on and on. So truly, you know, elections matter, majorities matter, and individuals matter. And that's what we saw this session.
0: And we have the same Democratic majority going into next year's session. And so I think uh, expectations will continue to be high. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to offer your insights on this, uh, this legislative session. And thanks for all the work that you do.
2: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Anytime.
0: Monka Dengra is state senator for Washington's 45th legislative district. And we will end our show, as we always do, with some calls to action for our listeners. And they come from our friend, research team leader for Indivisible Washington's 8th District, Stephen Wilhelm. Hello, Stephen.
3: Hey, Stefan. How
0: are you? Good, man. So let's start with an item that we discussed here on the show last week with Congressman Adam Smith, uh, who's the chair of the Armed Services Committee. He and some other Democrats on the committee introduced a bill that would restrict Trump from using military construction budget money for his wall. Um, As we know, Trump declared a state of emergency, and he's looking to use whatever funding he can under that declaration. So this bill would cap what can be spent on emergency military construction right
3: exactly so the um bill prevents executive overreach by as you just said capping the emergency military construction authority at 250 million dollars per emergency so right right now the president's under a, a situation where there's no limit on on uh, the amount of money that he can spend for an, a military emergency, so he's trying to cobble together. Uh, last number I heard was upwards of uh, four billion dollars. He was trying to get six billion dollars. I think he had corralled about four point two billion. So this would clearly. Um, limit that. And it also um, reinforces some other restrictions. It tightens up the rules or the definitions, if you will, on what does or doesn't constitute a a military emergency or how the money can be spent. So really trying to prevent the military construction budget from being used as the president's personal piggy bank for whatever effort he wants to make.
0: Right. Well, I mean, it's, an, it's my understanding that Congress has already allocated money for border security and it's specifically not intended to be used on Trump's wall. So this bill would keep Trump from, say, finding a loophole to try to use it for his wall.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, people shouldn't forget that, that in fact, Congress offered uh, the president a ton of money more money than he's even asking for now for his wall um to address dreamers and other things so right. you know mr art of the deal <laughs> is definitely not coming up with the with the best uh possible deal for for his wall but but even in the most recent uh budget congress has offered uh 1.2 billion dollars uh in uh, border security um but for n- not for the wall you know for right. things like um video surveillance, audio surveillance, upgrading, you know, your listeners should remember we've already got more than 600 uh, miles of physical barrier and and this uh, money would upgrade some of that physical barrier to, you know, a more effective barrier. Um, And so it's not that uh, Congress isn't willing to provide or to improve uh, border security. We're just not going to waste it on on a wall that's not going to be effective.
0: Yep. And the uh, measure in the House is H.R. 2762. So we are asking our members of Congress to support that. And we are also asking our senators to introduce and support a similar measure in the Senate. All right. So let's talk next about a Trump nomination for U.N. ambassador. This is Kelly Knightcraft. This, uh, of course, is a vacancy that has been left by Nikki Haley since her resignation from the Post. What can you tell us about Kelly Knightcraft? I understand that she is particularly unqualified, even by Trump nominee standards. Uh, so uh, tell us about that.
3: Right. You might even describe her as almost breathtakingly unqualified. But <laughs> um, So she was originally uh, chosen as the U.S. ambassador to Canada and now nominated uh, as ambassador to the United Nations, primarily because she and her third husband, uh, billionaire coal baron Joe Kraft, are mega- Uh, MAGA donors. Apparently, they gave Mm. about $1.5 million to GOP candidates in 2016 and and, uh, close to $300,000 to Trump's campaign or his joint uh, fundraising committee with the RNC. Uh, and, And maybe just as important from President Trump's perspective, they are repeat, high paying customers at Trump's hotel in Washington. Uh, apparently, another recommendation for her is that as a Kentucky native, she's a supporter of uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and is said to be friends with McConnell's wife, uh, Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, who your listeners might recall has recently been busted for not um, adhering to her ethics agreement um, when she was nominated to be Secretary of Transportation. She said she would uh, sell some uh, stock that she owned and and. Forgot to sell it, but she finally got around to selling it and made even uh, $40,000 more than she should have made. So, uh, again, breathtakingly unqualified uh, ambassador to the UN. Um, So, those are typically the kind of qualifications that would get somebody uh, nominated to be the ambassador to Monte Carlo or some important (sighs) place like that at least at least uh, as uh, ambassador to canada she has managed to avoid war with canada so far so i guess maybe <laughs> that's a qualification um but her her probably the, the one thing that really stands out for her is her uh, statement on climate change and and she must have gotten this directly from the president's uh, statement on good people on both sides in uh, charlottesville um but, but her stance on climate change is quote I believe there are scientists on both sides that are accurate. And I appreciate and respect both sides of the science. And that statement was widely and rightly ridiculed because while there's debate about what to do about global warming, there's no debate um, about whether global warming is is real. Um, In fact, supposedly her electronic signatures uh, have even included, quote, sent by my coal-powered iPad. So so she is going to arrive at the uh, United Nations as a laughingstock. Uh, just like President Trump, and it's really hard to avoid the suspicion that that's exactly what Trump intends. He's showing contempt for the United Nations and the world uh, by appointing an ambassador who's singularly unqualified for the position.
0: Yeah, it's uh, as you say, it's it's all very breathtaking. Um, So we are asking our senators to oppose the nomination of Kelly Knightcraft as U.N. ambassador. And finally, again, per our discussion last week with Adam Smith, uh, there are a couple of resolutions aimed at denying Trump the authorization to go to war with Iran. What are they?
3: So these are in the House. It's uh, H.R. two, four, five, four. And in the Senate, it's S. one, zero, three, nine. Um, and what those resolutions will do specifically is those bills will prohibit funds from being used for um, what's called kinetic military operations. And your listeners might understand ki- kinetic military operations are those that actually involve, uh, you know, troops marching, airplanes flying, tanks rolling. Um, so, actual military uh, operations. So, again, Congress using the power of the purse. Um, to prevent the president from doing something that uh, Congress and the American people um, don't want him to do. Um, It doesn't prohibit things like uh, cyber operations or or things like that, but it does prohibit actual use of military troops. Um, So what we're asking um, your listeners to do is to call their members of Congress and their senators and ask them both to support these bills, but also to make public statements um, in opposition of the president going to war, uh, using the military to take action against Iran.
0: Yeah, you know, I should just note in closing, uh, for those of us who remember the Bush administration's justification for war with Iraq, uh, all of this feels very familiar, uh, and National Security Advisor John Bolton himself feels like a throwback because uh, he was ambassador to the UN under George W. Bush. So we've come full circle uh, in a very dark way in this segment. Stephen, Feel- thank you so much, as always, and we'll talk to you next week. My pleasure. Thanks, Stephen. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you missed anything, if you'd like to catch up on past shows, if you would like links to the things that we talked about this week, you can find all of that at indivisiblepodcast.org. You can subscribe to the show there, too, and have that delivered to your email inbox. If you want to drop us a line, the email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guest Teresa Moore, and Senator Monka Dingra. Special thanks to Ashley Jackson. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.